Good morning. Thank you, um, Carol, for leading us, and uh, it's lovely to see you all here. Uh, special welcome if you're here for the first time or if you're new. And as Carol said, we've been doing a series on relationships, which we are approaching the end of. Fee will finish off next week uh, to sort of draw things together. Um, good to have the Winfields with us, by the way. Wherever, yes, there you are. Yes, so um, many, big part of our church family a few years ago now live down in Exeter. So make sure you say hello to Paul and Joy afterwards if you know them. Now, I'm going to start with some words of Scripture. These won't be on the screen. Uh, if you can look them up if you want to in your Bible. They're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or, or just listen to them. I'm not going to address these words specifically as I speak, but I'd just like them to be in the back of our minds as we think about what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Paul writes to this young church in Corinth, a cosmopolitan city in the Roman Empire. He says these words, For the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are, as I say, approaching the end of a series on relationships, and today we are looking at sexuality and same-sex relationships. Last week, I told you a story, and I have heard some of your stories in recent weeks. Thank you for sharing them. Last week, I also posed some questions. I wonder if you talked about them together this week or if you pondered them. I hope you did. This week, I want to try and give some answers, but I also want to acknowledge that I don't have all the answers and that some answers aren't easy. Human sexuality is an area on which people disagree. And so it can divide people. It can divide people within Christ's church. But I want to begin with what unites us, because actually, even on this topic, I think there is a lot of common ground on which we can stand. Unity, and especially church unity, is a good thing. 
The Bible strongly encourages unity. When we are united, we can glorify God and serve his kingdom. Whereas if we pull in different directions, those things become a lot harder. So I'm going to give you seven things which unite us. One for each day of the week, hence the graphic. They're not literally for each day of the week, just to help you remember them. They're all for every day of the week. Some of them uh, we've already covered in previous weeks, uh, and I'm not going to go into detail on any of them now, and they're not in any particular order, but I'm going to suggest seven things which I think unite us. Uh, Whoops, turn my thing on. Firstly, hatred. Hatred or violence or abuse towards people on the basis of their sexuality is always wrong. I hope we can agree on that. Sadly, the church does not always have a good track record here, so this is something we must state clearly. Many gay people regard the church as an oppressive institution, and sometimes they have good reason for feeling that. And therefore, we have to be extra intentional about showing compassion and respect. Whatever your sexuality, we are for you, not against you. We stand against hatred and violence and abuse. Secondly, if you experience sexual attraction to people of the same gender as you, that is not sinful. It is generally accepted that whether our sexual orientation is determined genetically or by experiences early in life or a combination of the two, It is not normally something you can do much about. In fact, many gay people, and certainly many gay Christians, would say they have fought unsuccessfully against such feelings. The attractions themselves are not evil, and we cannot necessarily expect to be delivered from those feelings in this life, however much we might want to be. Attraction to people of the same gender as you, is not sinful. Thirdly, we live here in Britain in a post-Christian society. It's pointless to pretend otherwise. And our role as God's children and our role as church is not to try and impose our views on a society. We are called to be salt and light We are called to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to testify to the difference he's made in our lives. We are called to stand up for the weak and the vulnerable, but we are not called to make demands or to try to impose obligations on those who do not share our faith. We are not called to impose our views on society. We are called to bear testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done and can do in our lives. Fourthly, for disciples of Jesus, any form of promiscuity is off-limits. For us, the only place for sex is in a lifelong committed relationship. Now, God is a God of forgiveness and second chances, so divorce and remarriage are permitted subject to certain conditions. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin, of unfaithfulness and promiscuity. There is always an opportunity for forgiveness and a second chance. 
But God's will for Christians is either lifelong faithfulness to one sexual partner or celibacy, i.e. no sex. That goes against the flow of contemporary culture, just as it did for the early churches in cities like Corinth and other parts of the Roman Empire. But down the centuries, Christianity has always upheld the primacy of those two lifestyles, lifelong commitment to one sexual partner until death us do part, or celibacy. Promiscuity is off limits for the children of God. Number five, we welcome, we welcome everybody here into our church building, into our church community. Whatever your sexuality, whatever you have done, whatever you are still doing, whatever you have had done to you, we welcome you into this place, not because we are trying to be trendy or get diversity kudos, but because we care about you. And we want you to experience and to keep on experiencing what we have experienced, the love and forgiveness of, God's, of God himself. The, the community of being part of God's people, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness of our sins and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. You are welcome here, whoever you are, because we want you to know something of what we have discovered. Sixthly, we have been created as sexual beings and we cannot deny our sexuality. However, if we are Christians, our sexuality is not to be our primary identity. We are called to see our main identity as that of children of God and disciples of Jesus. The most important thing I can say about myself is not that I'm gay or straight. My sexuality is not the source of my pride. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The most significant thing I can say about myself is that I am a child of God. That is my primary identity. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus, we make that our identity, and we don't allow other things to override that. And finally, one thing which some Christian people who are gay or same-sex attracted often say, and I'll come back to this later, is that what they're primarily looking for is not necessarily a sexual relationship, but it's intimacy. It's to be able to share their lives and their feelings at a deeper level than what they're currently experiencing. And one thing which our society generally, and sadly a lot of churches too, are not very good at, is providing such intimacy. Unless you're a couple or a nuclear family, in which case we tend to make it easier for you. So I think we can and should acknowledge that this is something we should do better at. Not just offering a polite welcome on, Friday, on Sunday and say, see you again next week. But opening up our lives, our homes, our hearts to one another. And particularly to single people, whatever their sexuality. So seven things. And I hope that although they are demanding and countercultural, 
those seven things are not particularly controversial for people who follow Jesus. And so it would be awfully nice to stop right there. But it is good to pause there at least and to remember what unites us and to celebrate those things even though they are difficult things. But we do need to go on and be honest about some of the more difficult aspects. And I'm going to put on the screen what I think is really the crux question for Christians on which perhaps we will not all agree. Can a committed, lifelong relationship between two Christians of the same gender, which involve sexual acts, be part of God's purposes? A committed, lifelong relationship, not promiscuity. Between two Christians, I'm talking about us here, I'm not trying to impose our standards on the world, which involves sexual acts, so this isn't just about feelings and orientation, this is about something, uh, it's what we do with those actions. Can that be part of God's purposes for us? And I'm going to explain very briefly, and, and I, can't, I don't have time to do this justice, I can't say everything, that could be said, but I'm going to say very briefly how I would answer that question, and then I'm going to, because I'm going to give you an answer, three A's here, those taking notes, I see some of you with your pens, uh, three, three A's, an answer, but also an addition or an addendum, which we need to bear in mind. And then thirdly, an application. So here's an answer. After seven years of listening to me, for some of you, you know that I unashamedly would say that the way we discover what God's good plans and purposes are for our lives is, is not by looking in ourselves, it's not by looking within ourselves and finding those answers. It's not by nasal-gazing. It's not by listening purely to what we hear being said around about us or on social media. The way we discover what God's plans and purposes for our lives is by listening to God himself through his word. To the, to, by listening to the God who we believe speaks to us, who we believe reveals himself to us. Graciously, a God who does not withdraw from us, but graciously keeps on showing himself to us and showing us the kind of God he is and the kind of people he created us to be. So we submit ourselves to him and what he said. We read the Bible. We read it humbly. We seek the Holy Spirit's help. We read it above all in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ because this written word points us to, one, to someone with even more authority, Jesus himself, the living word of God, in whom all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. Now, I recently made three short videos, uh, which, which hopefully most of you have seen, they came around on the church email, in which I summarized what the Bible says directly about same-sex relationships. And I'm not going to repeat what's in those videos. I'm taking those, in a sense, as read except just to summarize and say that although the Bible doesn't mention homosexual behavior very much at all, every time it is mentioned, it is strongly discouraged for the children of God. Instead, I'm going to try and put those verses uh, that, that I, I mentioned in the videos in some kind of context by highlighting three of the big themes which God reveals to us in the Bible. 
which I think also reveals something about sexuality. Because as I said in a talk a few weeks ago, actually, people outside the church think that Christians are embarrassed about sex, that the God and the Bible are somehow embarrassed about sex. Actually, sex is at the heart of the gospel. Sexuality is at the heart of the gospel. Our bodies are important. And, and our, our, the future of our body is important. Our, our heavenly hope is, a, is an embodied hope. And everything about our bodies and our sexuality is not just there by coincidence. It's pointing. It's saying something. But let me give you uh, three things, which, three big, big picture things, which I think help us to see what, the, what God um, has to say to us about sexuality. Firstly, God's purpose is... God's purpose for humanity is good. And you might say, well, that's, that's pretty obvious. But let's just, let's just ponder that for a moment. We see in the Bible that God's purpose for humanity is good. And right at the beginning of the Bible, one of the ploys of the serpent in the Garden of Eden was to suggest that God was, in his prohibition of eating certain fruit, that God was somehow mean, that God was somehow depriving people of what's best for them. That God is somehow not trustworthy. And it was as a result of believing God to be mean and constraining and untrustworthy. And in acting on those beliefs that the first humans came to feel naked and ashamed. To feel sadness and fear and loss. God's purpose for humanity is rainbow shaped. Not in the sense of being anything we want it to be, but in the sense of being beautiful and good. God's purpose is not to harm us, but to bless us and give us a hope and a future. And as God's people, we are called to trust him on that. To trust God on what he says is good and is not good. God's purpose for humanity is good. Secondly, and and don't mishear this one, God's purpose for humanity is marriage-shaped. I don't mean that God's purpose is for everyone to get married. Obviously not. The one human who came to show us supremely uh, what a human should be was himself never married, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is it a sense in which God's purpose for humanity is marriage-shaped. And what I mean by that is that the Bible's account of humanity begins with a marriage between Adam and Eve. And it ends with a marriage between Christ and his church. Genesis to Revelation is a story of humanity as a marriage-shaped community. Between those two momentous events, Adam and Eve's marriage the marriage of Christ and his church still to come. Between those two momentous events, humans do all sorts of things. Humans are still doing all sorts of things, many of them bad, from which God in Christ comes to redeem us, restoring us to his original purpose. And there is something in that great overarching story. Something in the picture of us being created for and destined for Eternal union with someone who is, with someone who's made of the same stuff as us, but is also not like us. There's something in that great picture, that great story, which we are not encouraged to redefine, but are instead encouraged to allow to define us 
whether we are married in this life or not. Our lives, including our sex life or our celibacy, are a trailer, are a foretaste, are a parable, are an anticipation of something even more glorious. And thirdly, God's purpose for humanity is cross-shaped. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, saying to God, not my will, but yours be done. And in doing so, he sets a pattern for his followers. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, one of the few Christians in Germany who stood up to Hitler, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. It is only as we die that we find life. Tragically, many things in this fallen world are not fair. Certainly, the cross is not fair. But the cross is our calling as disciples of Jesus. I don't apologize for the cross, although I know it can be a stumbling block, as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians. I do apologize if you have been misled into thinking that you can have Christ without a cross I do apologize if you've seen Christians behaving in church as if they have Christ without the cross. Those things cannot be true. We are called to live lives which are cross-shaped. And it is as we do that, that we find what true life is. In a few weeks, we'll have a baptism here. Someone will, will go under the water as a picture of them dying, a picture of them dying with the Lord Jesus Christ and then rising again to newness of life. You don't, you don't rise again to newness of life in Christ without identifying with his death. When Jesus calls a man or woman, he bids them come and die, that they may find life. And so for these and other reasons, I think that the answer to the question that was on the screen just now is the difficult one. That Jesus calls his disciples either to heterosexual marriage or to celibacy. Not all followers of Jesus would agree with me on that, but I can only tell you what I think based on my reading of Scripture. Not just a few proof texts, but the bigger picture of Scripture as a whole. But I want to also remind you of the seven things we do agree on. I hope we agree on. Let's see this in context. So that's my answer. But now let me give you my, I'll call it my addendum, my addition to the answer. You could call it a qualification to the answer. And this, come back, this comes back to the point I made earlier about identity. I don't think that Christians should make their sexuality their primary identity. And I don't think churches should make sexuality their primary identity. And that cuts both ways. There are some churches who, you know, wave rainbow flags and make a big deal of affirming LGBT lifestyles, and I, and I think their motives are, are, pretty, are pretty much good in the sense that they're trying to reach out to vulnerable people. But I think it's a mistake for a church to make it their primary identity. But here's the other thing. I also know quite a lot of churches who seem to make it their identity to be anti-LGBT who always seem to be going on about it, as if it's the most important thing in the world to them, who seem to feel very fearful 
and anxious about the whole issue, who can't accept people who disagree with them, for whom this issue is the litmus test of whether you're a proper Christian and a proper church. And I don't see it that way. And my prayer for Hayward Heath Baptist Church is that we are not defined by this issue either way, but by Jesus Christ and him crucified. My prayer is that this is a church which cares most that people are able to hear the gospel and that the message of the cross is the only stumbling block we ever place in the way because that is the only stumbling block scripture encourages us to place in the way. And it is a stumbling block, as we heard in Paul's message. My prayer is that we don't become a church which pushes people away, away towards the world, or away towards churches which don't talk about Jesus and the cross. My prayer is also that we might be a church which is big enough to accommodate people who may not agree with us. That we will not make it a defining issue on a par with Christ and the cross that we will have the courage to say what we do believe, but also have the faith to leave it to God to convict those who need to be convicted and to have the humility to see that there may be things we also need to be convicted about. I spoke earlier about unity. Unity doesn't necessarily mean, well, it doesn't mean uniformity. We can be united even if we're different. But if we are different, we have to work all the harder at unity. So let's not make this our defining issue. Let's be people of conviction, but also humble in our convictions. And finally, oh yeah, that's us. Finally, an application. And this is mainly a challenge for those of us who are straight, heterosexual people, particularly, perhaps, for those of us who are married or who live in nuclear families. And it goes back to my earlier point about intimacy. Now, I've read a lot of books on this topic. I mean, a lot of books and articles and videos and talk to people. And uh, including by a lot of people who are themselves, well, in their own terminology, same-sex attracted or gay, uh, people use different uh, language. But uh, two of the most famous Christian books on this topic, and and two very accessible Christian books on this topic, are uh, these two on the screen. Undivided by Vicky Beeching and Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill. Both Christians those people who are same-sex attracted. And they reach different conclusions. So uh, Vicky Beeching concludes that it is okay for her to have a gay sexual relationship, and Wes Hill concludes the opposite. Now, I'm probably oversimplifying things a bit, but as I read those two books, I was really struck, firstly, by how badly Vicky Beeching was treated by the church the church generally, mainly in America, but not just in America. How badly she was treated as she was coming to terms with and wrestling with her own sexuality. Fighting it, not wanting to be gay, but wrestling with it. And how, as she did that, she found pretty much zero support within the church. She was not cared for. 
she was ostracized, even for just saying, these are my feelings. Is it any wonder that she turned her back on the church's teaching on sexuality? By contrast, Wes Hill found support within a church, support which has helped him to follow the hard path of celibacy. And and I commend his book to you. He writes very movingly about that. But Hill argues that churches need to do much better, that we need to do better at providing genuine community and opportunities for intimacy. Otherwise, we will make it virtually impossible for people like him to keep going on the path God, he believes God has called him to walk. Will we be a church like that? Will we be a church that supports people who are wrestling with how their sexuality and their faith work together? Will we be people who invite such folk into our homes, into our families, into our hearts? I can only leave that with you because I'm not going to be here for much longer. But as we leave this topic, most of us perhaps think, oh, well, we'll move on now. We'll talk about something else next week. Some, some people can't do that. For some people, this is intrinsic to who they feel they are as a person. So how are we, how are you going to support such people in the months and years ahead? How are you going to make them feel safe here to talk about how they're actually feeling? How are you going to be honest with them, given some of the things I've said, some of the things we read in the Bible? But how are you going to support them? How are you going to allow them to find intimacy and community and true heartfelt love and acceptance? I think you can do that, but I think you're going to need the Holy Spirit's help. You're going to need a lot of wisdom and you're going to need a lot of grace because it's very easy to flip one of both ways to some extreme and to make this whole thing somehow our identity in a not very positive fashion. It's harder to walk with people through the pain. It's harder, if you're in that situation, to walk through the pain rather than walking away. So can we be quiet for a moment and can we ask for God's help now? And, and I say to you, if you are somebody, as I've said week by week, if you are somebody for whom this is a direct issue, then please do talk to someone here, someone in our church family about it. Talk to, talk to me, talk to one of our prayer team, talk to one of the deacons, the pastoral team, talk to somebody you know, uh, and, and start that process of, of working through what this means for you or maybe your family member or your close friend for whom this is a direct issue. But for those of us for whom it's a less direct issue, let's not just walk on by, cross over to the other side of the street and move on to next Sunday's topic. Let's think, actually, how am I going to make this a place? How am I going to make my home a place which is truly welcoming and helpful to those who wrestle with this topic? So a a moment to pause, and then I'll lead us in prayer.
The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Lord, this is, this is a difficult topic for, for all of us in one way or another. But in the words, in the light of the songs we sang earlier in the service, Lord, we ask you to take our lives, to take every aspect of our lives, to take our homes, our privacy, to take our sexuality, our identity, to take our security, and to use it for your glory. We bring these things, we bring our lives to the cross, and we pray for your help that we might live the lives you call us to live. Wherever we are, whatever, however we are affected by this issue, we pray that you will help us to live cross-shaped lives. And we need your help for that because our natural inclination is not to do so. It is to do something else. And so we need your help. And we pray, Holy Spirit, will you come upon us? Will you come among us? Will you empower us and transform us to live the kind of lives you want us to live? Lives which point to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life in whom all the fullness of the Godhead lives in bodily form, in whom we look forward one day to being united in that great cosmic wedding ceremony where there will be no longer any more mourning or crying or pain, no more wrestling with sexuality, no more frustration, no more regret, but eternity in your presence where there is fullness of joy. Keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus and the hope you lay before us. Amen. We're going to sing our final song. So this is, um, this is a blast from the 1990s. You might think it's a bit strange, but I think it's, uh, I think it's a nice song, actually. I can't remember the last time we sung it. It's a, it's a prayer. It's, quite, it's a jolly song, um, but it's a song. I'm waiting for the, the words to appear, but it says, Teach me to dance. You can dance if you want to. I mean, you can treat this as metaphorical. I I know what you're like, so I know you won't, but I am giving you permission to dance about. Maybe one or two of you will. We are allowed to dance, but but think of it in in spiritual terms as well. We we want God's Spirit to enable our spirits to dance, to, to delight in what God has revealed to us. Teach me, O Lord, to dance to the beat of your heart, to move in the power of your spirit, to walk in the light of your presence, to dance to the beat of your heart. Please stand if you can. Dance if you can. Let's sing.